Well, after a, a break, a week of a break in our regular schedule, we're finally at the end of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 8. And this morning, we'll look at verses 30 through 39. We are back on schedule and making our way steadily to Romans chapter 9. And we'll arrive there next week. Young Christians, young theologians, let me give you the question that you're to be listening for this morning. Just one question this morning. Pretty simple. Maybe more challenging than it sounds. But this morning I want you to listen for the answer to this question. How big is the love of Jesus? Just how big is it? How would you say it? How would you measure it? That's what we want to listen for this morning. Here is the gospel of Jesus the Savior at the end of chapter 8 in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. O Lord Jesus, teach us of the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. Because we're slow to believe and quick to forget. And you, on the other hand, never forget. And the dimensions of your gospel are always clearly before you. Never is there a time where you forget how fully and thoroughly you love us. And by that love, we pray that you would wake us from our slumber, our sloth, our laziness. Revive us from our deadness and our apathy. And transform us out of the sin that seems to be so strong so much of the time. Rather, transform us into the glory of God revealed in redeemed flesh. Not perfect, but being sanctified. Able to refuse sin, to say declaratively to the sin that tracks us every day. No, you do not rule me. And you cannot separate me from Jesus the Christ. And your strong love allow us to put up a convincing and joyful fight against our sin. 
And for all of this, as always, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Be seated. I think I have finally figured out the winter games. Maybe they weren't a puzzle to you, but they have been to me. I haven't been able to understand why I'm so interested in them. The summer games, I get, they're instantly accessible. Most of us can or do or have played many of the sports in the summer games. Basketball, softball, beach volleyball. What kid hasn't raced to the other side of the pool on a summer day? What grade school child hasn't participated in field day at school? None of us can run the 100 meters like Usain Bolt, but all of us have tried. We can relate to the summer games because we've experienced them, but not the winter games. None of us here is ever going to take a run on the luge, thank God, or tuck into a bobsled or ski jump. The Winter Games are, for most Americans anyway, a collection of alien sporting events with indecipherable scoring systems. Sports we don't know and don't follow, and superstars we don't recognize. So, why do I care like I do that an ice skating pair can throw a side-by-side triple toe loop? Especially when the only way I would even know that they had done it successfully is when the commentators tell me they have. Here's why I care. I care because a handful of weeks ago, an earthquake cracked Haiti like an egg. And I care because last weekend, a heavy snow fell and all but crippled our city. And in both of those events, I felt small. I care because I want to see someone dominate the elements. That's what the Winter Games are about. Man versus nature. So to see someone exhibit great strength and control at blistering speeds on the steep slope of a mountain face, or to move with power and grace across a sheet of ice that would immobilize the rest of us for a brief moment, for just a moment, I don't feel quite so small. And Paul knows exactly how small you feel. Paul knows how small you feel in the particular questions of your life. And he knows how small you feel in the theological questions that eat away at you. Look, we're about to cross over into Romans chapter 9. And once we cross the Rubicon, there is no going back. In chapter 9, we're going to see life from a different vantage point. We're going to see life from the perspective of God's sovereignty. And if Paul doesn't prepare us before we cross over into that chapter, we could have a very bad emotional reaction to what's waiting for us in Romans 9. So, Paul faces up to our feelings of smallness. And here's his 
structure for the task. He asks four questions that reveal, that get at the heart of our feeling small. And then in answer to each of those questions, he unveils the staggering size of the gospel. So here is the first question at the end of verse 31. Who can be against us? With this question, Paul is reaching all the way back into chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, where he explained that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness, which creates something of a personal crisis. Because I am a willing participant in that ungodliness and in that wickedness. I have a hand in it. Some of us don't like this very much. In fact, some of us who have been here for a long time, who should know better, don't like this very much. But if you take this away, there's no gospel left. To be sinners means to have an angry God against us. That's why Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God is angry with sinners over their sin. But, God has loved sinners in their sin. And he turned his anger away through his gospel. And verse 32 explains it. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He gave up his own son to fall into his angry hands. He turned against his son in the place of sinners with an effect so complete and so thorough that it can now be said, God who was against us is for us. And that turning is what we celebrate Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Against has been turned to for So now does it matter if anyone else is against us, really? I love this quote from Frederick Buechner, the Presbyterian writer. In Beauty and the Beast, it is only when Beast discovers that beauty really loves him in all his ugliness that he himself becomes beautiful. That's what Paul is saying here. Who could possibly be against you with any weight or force or meaning at all when God, who has every reason to be against you, has turned his heart to be for you? Our justification is really beauty and the beast. With God cast as beauty and you as beast, and beauty has loved you in your ugliness and is transforming you by his love, and if beauty has taken you into his heart, does it matter at all that anyone else should shake the fist at you or or hurl insults and curses at you? His love is so great, it should hardly even register. You shouldn't even feel it. The second question is in verse 33. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? As a church, we don't flinch or shy away from the last word in that question. Elect. 
as individuals, some of us might. Some struggle and wrestle with election. We know that, and that's fine. But just remember, Paul can only believe in election because that's how he was saved. Paul didn't make a decision for Jesus. In fact, he had decided against Jesus. He was riding to Damascus to terrorize churches. And Jesus chose Paul and knocked him off his horse. So for Paul, Christians are those whom God has elected to save. But we're coming to that in Romans 9. In this part of the letter, with this question, Paul raises another problem. Charges. And he's reaching back into chapter 3 this time, particularly verses 9 through 20, where his argument is no one is righteous before God. And then he runs a very comprehensive and uncomfortable list of all the ways we are not righteous. And he concludes the argument by saying, and oh yeah, you can't law your way out of your unrighteousness either. You can't work your way into righteousness. So there are heavy charges that stand, but not for the elect. Elect means God has chosen. He was not coerced or tricked or manipulated into it. God has chosen to love you in spite of the charges, against the charges, over the charges, beyond the charges. So, yes, to be truthful about it, charges could be brought against us very accurately, but he won't even hear them. That's what election means. And by the way, I want you to realize that election is not an abstract idea. It's very personal and very practical, and we live with it every day. I wrote a valentine to one of my daughters this year in which I wrote to her, I love you deeply and here's how you can know it and be sure of it always. Even when you frustrate me and God knows how you frustrate me. Even when you frustrate me, even then I am glad you are mine. I do not wish you away. I never regret that you've been given to me. In the hardest times, still I want you as mine. That's election. I'm not stuck with you. I choose you. And I won't hear anyone argue that you should not be mine. Question three is in verse 34. Who is to condemn This is like that point in a wedding where the officiant used to ask. It's not done much anymore, but it used to be commonplace. Does anyone know of any just reason why this man should not be married to this woman? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Now that's a dangerous moment in a wedding. Everybody holds their breath. And some of the more insidious guests sit up in their seats hoping to hear something juicy. And the bride and the groom wince because they both know who they are and they both know where they've come from. 
And they both know that anybody could stand up and bring charges and condemnation against either one of them and both of them. It's a tricky thing calling for an open mic in the middle of a wedding. In most cases, no one stands up. No one says a word. And the wedding continues and they're married. And at that point, no one can ever make the argument that they should not be married. It's too late for that. Passing the moment of speak now or forever hold your peace, no one can object. There is no one to condemn past this moment. But in our case, we stand before God and the question goes out, is there anyone who knows any just reason why this God should not be married to this people eternally? Is there anyone who has any reason why this God should not give himself and take for himself these sinners? Speak up or hold your silence forever. And Satan is there ready to accuse us. He has this endless and convincing list of all the reasons why we should be condemned and not taken by this God. And he's only all too eager to read them out. But no sooner does he start than the bridegroom speaks up. That's enough. I've taken care of all of that. And that's all he says or ever has to say. Because he stands there with the Father, crucified and risen and ascended at God's right hand. He did all of that for the elect. His presence at the Father's right hand is his intercession for you. We often get confused about this idea of Jesus interceding for us. We sometimes think that it means Jesus falls on his knees and prays on our behalf. That's not what it means. What it means is just by Christ's being there, you are remembered. When the Father looks at Jesus, He sees you. And without ever having to speak a word to the Father, Jesus is presenting you wordlessly. He defends you against every reason that the marriage should be canceled. By His presence with the Father, Jesus is saying, don't forget these. You have chosen them, you've elected them, you've redeemed them and called them in me. And I bear their marks. I bear the marks of the price you paid for their redemption. And the awkward moment of the wedding passes. With these words. Let the wedding go on. And there's no one left to condemn. The last question is in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You understand that this is everything that the enemy works for to separate you from the love of Christ. You understand that this is all your sin wants to pull you apart from Christ. And given our own weakness, doesn't it sometimes feel like we could be pulled away from Jesus by anything in the list of verse 35? Sometimes our place with Jesus feels so tentative and fragile, but never to him. He can't elect us and then lose us. 
He can only elect us if he has the strength and the ability to keep us. I remember stepping off a plane and walking up the gangway where Jennifer was waiting to meet me. And when she saw me, she ran up and she threw her arms around me and she wouldn't let go. I'd just come home from the jungle and she thought I might not make it back. While I was in the jungle, here's what I survived. A presidential election in a third world country where the U.S. backed candidate, not well loved by the nationals, by the way, won again. That's a dangerous situation for an American in country. I survived a political protest in the streets. A sickness very much like malaria. Sure felt like malaria. I thought I was dying on the jungle floor. I survived swimming across a tributary of the Amazon. The verbs drowned or eaten should apply here. I slogged through a swamp of chest-deep water, get this, looking for anaconda and electric eels. I shouldn't have come home. I shouldn't have made it back. And this isn't the place in the story, by the way, where I say something entirely romantic and entirely untrue like, but nothing could keep us apart. Nothing could ever have kept us apart from one another. Any one of those things could have and probably should have kept us apart. So how is it that none of the things in verse 35 can keep us from Jesus? Because an election, he won't allow it. Here's the difference between me and Jesus. I survived and he didn't. I escaped. Jesus didn't. He died under the compounded strength of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine. A soul-wrenching emptiness and neediness and nakedness. This heart Breaking, heart-stopping shame and danger and the sword. As much of these as there is to suffer, Jesus suffered it all. And then he rose up out of it all. So he can't suffer any more from these things. And he certainly can't suffer the loss of you to these things. And you now can only suffer with Christ You now can only suffer for Christ. But you can never suffer apart from Christ. For Paul, this part of chapter 8 has been an exercise in measurements. Especially when we get to verses 38 and 39. For I am sure, I am convinced, I'm certain that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross is higher than your sin. With the mountain of your sin reaching to heaven to accuse you, the cross 
reaches past it to plead for you. And the tomb is deeper than your deepest guilt. And Jesus' rule at the right hand of the Father is broader and more expansive than anything you will ever face. How big is the gospel, Paul is asking. It's so vast, it's reached through eternity to claim you. So full, it can't run out. So enormous, you can't find the ends of it. Exactly how big is the gospel, asks Paul. It's bigger than your sin. It is no bigger than your need. And it's every bit as big as the love of God for his people. Very good of Paul to size up the gospel for us because we have a knack for sizing it down. We shrink down the love of Christ routinely and we say to ourselves, no, it can't be that big. It can't be as big as I need it to be. And simultaneously, we enlarge, we expand the size of our circumstances. Look at how overwhelming these things are for me. And Paul refuses to accept our scale of measurements. That's why in the middle of this section, he quotes from Psalm 144. For your sake, Jesus, we are dying all day long like sheep being led to the slaughter. In other words, we feel like these things will be the end of us, and yet they're not. They never do us in. Right, Paul says. The gospel is much too big for your circumstances to handle. So Paul throws out the measurements we take of our own lives, and he rescales everything according to the love of Christ. Because The measurements we take of our own lives are are far too misleading. Paul rescales and recasts everything in this incalculable love of Christ. And he says to us, now you have to see yourselves differently. Now you have to see yourselves in the same way that Jesus sees you. But first, two ways Jesus does not see you. He doesn't see you as a victim. So for some of us who love to see ourselves as victim, we have to get rid of that. A victim is someone who suffers loss at the hands of another. Someone who is incapacitated by loss. But if you look back through this section, at the conclusion of this chapter, loss is not a word Paul uses to describe you. Loss fits nowhere in the description. And you can't think of yourself as a conqueror. A conqueror is someone who takes what he or she didn't have before by force or by strength. And the point here is, you can't take what you already have. The text has twice said, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. As much love as Christ has to give is already Yours. So Paul actually has to invent a third category to describe you. You are more than a conqueror, Paul says. You are a super conqueror. You're not merely one who endures. You're not one who hangs on or just gets by. You are not one who simply 
makes it through and somehow you'll be stronger for it all on the other side. That's not what Paul says. He says, you're an overcomer. You, in Christ's love, are bigger than anything you could ever face, which is not a way we typically think of ourselves. You, in Christ's love, are far greater than anything you could ever face. You enter every situation unable to lose the love that Jesus has secured for you. You walk into every situation not lacking, but already fully supplied in His love. You walk into every situation with Jesus intending that you should only grow in the certainty and the enjoyment and the practice of His love. You know how Jesus sees you? Jesus sees you as a threat. Not to Him, but from Him. You are every bit as much a threat as He is. You are an immortal threat to faithlessness and to sin and to death. You are a threat to a city that builds for its own glory, endlessly building for its own glory. A city that stands like a monument to every form of brokenness imaginable. You're a threat to a city that longs to forget God and wants to be forgotten by Him. But just by being here, you continue to call the city into His grace and His mercy and His glory. Because you have this love of Jesus. Just by your presence in this city... You threaten to tear this whole place apart and rebuild it the way it was supposed to be. You're a threat to the recession. Because you are rich in Christ's love. And His love does not rise and fall with any market. Can you imagine what it would be if the church finally started appraising itself properly and really began to believe our wealth is in Jesus. Everything else can come and go, but no one can take from us the wealth that we have in Christ. You're a threat to your illnesses. The illnesses that dare you to say, God has not been good to me. And yet, in your illness, he's shown you his goodness up close in a way you could never have conceived of his goodness with perfect health. You're a threat to marriages that are more drought than garden. You're a threat to idolatrous parenting. It's a subtle, slippery shift to go from being a church that does family worship to being a church that worships the family. And you're a threat to it. You're a threat to singleness that thinks it's been forgotten. You're a threat to the kingdom of self that cries out for you to build it as a rival kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus. You're a threat to the church that's gone cold and comfortable with formality and fruitlessness. You're a threat to every idol of the heart. A threat to your own idols. Whatever convinces you that you don't need Jesus. Anything that makes the love of Jesus less urgent. 
you're a threat to what the Valley of Vision calls in one of its prayers, every darling lust. You are far more a threat to evil and brokenness than they will ever be to you. You are trouble for your troubles. You're a trial for your trials. You are your enemy's worst enemy. But the cross and the resurrection and the ministry of Jesus on the throne of heaven show us is that when our weakness and our ruin and our sin are at their worst, the love of Christ is at its strongest. And you are meant to live in the sin-frustrating strength of that love if you can take these measurements of your life. If you can stop sizing the gospel down and sizing your circumstances up. If you're a skeptic here with us this morning, I'm guessing that when we talk about the love of Christ, you feel threatened by that. And if that's true, I just want you to know you're on the wrong side of the threat. So is it time for you to switch sides? Is it time for you to enjoy his deepest forgiveness for the worst of your sins? Is it time for you to enjoy his deepest love for your deepest, most sensitive needs? Listen to Psalm, uh, to verse rather, 38 and 39 again. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So skeptics, is it time for you to hear that voice knowing that it was written with you in mind? Switch sides. Stop mistrusting and hating Jesus. Love him. And receive his love. HBO has just recently released a four-part miniseries called The House of Saddam. It's a a biopic feature on the life of Saddam Hussein. There's a scene in the film where Saddam has just, without warning, executed his childhood friend and closest advisor on the suspicion of disloyalty. And the scene following is... Saddam's other nervous advisors meeting and trying to console one another after this shocking event. Most of his advisors are relatives, cousins, half-brothers, brothers. There's one who's not related to Saddam in the group, Tariq Aziz, the Iraqi foreign minister who incidentally was raised Catholic. And one of the advisors points out that that no one there in that room has anything to worry about because the executed man was not family, which upsets Tariq Aziz. And he says, be careful what you're saying. I'm not family. And one of Saddam's half-brothers tries to console him. But Tariq, you're a Christian. You're a threat to no one but yourself. And that's not what this passage says. That is not what these verses say. These verses say Christians are the biggest threats 
And you are a threat to every enemy and every opponent of Christ's love. Amen. Oh Lord, give to us this immeasurable love of God in Christ, higher than our mountain of sin, deeper than the pit of our guilt, broader, more extensive than the sum of all our fears and worries. Give us the love of Christ in full measure that we may be more than conquerors and we may be useful to Him in the building of His kingdom for the glory of God, through the equipping of the Spirit, and on the authority of Christ Jesus, the all-powerful and preeminent. Do all of this for us. And give to us that deeper feeling sense of the vastness and enormity of your love.